You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 254, The Battle of Springfield. Last time, we covered General Wilhelm von Nippelsen's foray into New Jersey on June 6th through 8th, 1780, where he hoped to attack the Continental Headquarters at Morristown, but ended up doing little more than burning the village of Connecticut Farms. When Nippelsen launched the attack, he had done so at the urging of men like Governor Franklin, Governor and General James Robertson, and former Governor and still current Major General William Tryon. These men and other leading loyalists had been receiving word that the Continental Army was on the brink of collapse after the harsh winter at Morristown and that it was still not getting spring reinforcements that they expected. The loyalists were all saying that the people of New Jersey were tired of war and would gladly rally around any British advance into New Jersey, if only to end the fighting. Nipphausen came to believe that he had an opportunity to deal a death blow to the Continental Army before the French Army could land in America, and perhaps getting full credit for the victory by attacking before British General Henry Clinton returned from South Carolina. Nipphausen's failed attack showed that the Continentals were still very much a force to be reckoned with, and that the New Jersey militia was still more than willing to turn out against the British whenever they set foot in New Jersey. As with any loss, there was plenty of finger-pointing. Nipphausen said that he had been duped by loyalist leaders, who gave him bad intelligence about the state of the Continentals and the resolve of the state militia. Loyalist leaders pointed right back at Nipphausen and the Hessians, saying that he and Colonel Verm had moved far too slowly, sitting around for hours in what was supposed to be a lightning strike that would catch the enemy off guard. On June 8th, the same day that Nipphausen was bringing his defeated force back to New York, General Henry Clinton boarded a ship in Charleston. Having defeated the Southern Army under Benjamin Lincoln, Clinton was hoping to make it back to New York in time to confront the French Army that was expected to land any day. Clinton was unaware of Nipphausen's raid that had led to the Battle of Connecticut Farms. He had sent word via junior officers including by some accounts Major John Andre, that Nipphausen was to be prepared for an attack after the main army returned from South Carolina. According to one account, an officer had arrived to inform Nipphausen of this on the afternoon of June 6th, just as he was launching the raid. Nipphausen later said the officer only told him that Clinton would return soon, not that the general was planning his own attack after his arrival. General Clinton made it back to New York in a relatively speedy 10 days, arriving on June 18th. 
In his later reports, Clinton said that he had planned a two-pronged attack with Niphausen launching an attack similar to what Niphausen did at Elizabethtown, while Clinton launched another raid to the south at Amboy, knowing that Washington would be unable to defend against both attacks at the same time. Niphausen's raid before Clinton returned, however, had put the Americans on alert and had greatly reduced the chances of success for a second raid. At the same time, Clinton also received intelligence from General Benedict Arnold, the commander at West Point, who had already agreed to switch sides at an appropriate time. Arnold reported to Clinton that the French army was due to land at Newport, Rhode Island. Niphausen's raid that ended at Connecticut Farms certainly put Washington and the Continentals on alert. After some thought, Washington concluded that Niphausen's raid must not have simply been a failed attack. Rather, it was a feint to encourage Washington to move more of his army further south and closer to New York City in anticipation of the next raid. If that was what the British wanted him to do, Washington believed the next real attack would be for the British to sail up the Hudson River and attack West Point. It was only late June, with the whole summer and fall fighting season ahead of them, and with Clinton's main army on its way back to New York, Washington surmised that the British would attempt a much larger offensive and that the most likely target was West Point. Washington grew even more concerned after learning the British were concentrating larger forces at Elizabethtown and had even built a pontoon bridge between Staten Island and the New Jersey coast to transport men and equipment much faster. Even before Connecticut Farms, Washington had been frustrated by the failure of Congress and the states to supply him with enough soldiers to conduct a credible campaign in 1780. Not only that, Congress had ordered him to send some of his forces to the south to contest General Cornwallis in the Carolinas after the loss of the Southern Army under Benjamin Lincoln. The President of Congress at this time, Samuel Huntington, had specifically written to Washington to let him know that Congress wanted the Continental Cavalry under Light Horse Harry Lee to proceed immediately to the Carolinas. Huntington's letter included a contingency that said Washington could hold off on the transfer if it would have set some of his immediate plans. The normally compliant Washington relied on that to ignore Congress's request and keep his much-needed cavalry available to monitor the enemy following the attack on Connecticut farms. Washington sent an urgent note to the Board of War in Philadelphia requesting the immediate return of Lee's brigade. Lee's infantry had already moved further south, but the cavalry returned to Morristown to assist Washington. General Washington also put General von Steuben in command of the advance guard, tasking the former commander, Lord Sterling, with riding through New Jersey and trying to rouse more militia to turn out. Almost 3,000 militia had answered the call when the British marched on Connecticut farms but Washington had to allow more than half of them to return home. Had he tried to force them to stay in the field, they would just be less likely to turn out the next time he needed them. Washington also put General Greene in overall command of forces in New Jersey, while Washington himself focused on securing West Point, where Benedict Arnold commanded. Units in upstate New York, who were deployed to oppose the attacks by the Loyalists and the Iroquois from Niagara, also had to move to West Point to prepare for a defense of that important fort. Now, still in command at the front lines in New Jersey 
was General William Maxwell. In my last episode, I mentioned Maxwell's key role in preventing the British advance, but I've never really given much detail on Maxwell. General Maxwell was of Scottish descent, but was born in Northern Ireland. When he was a young boy, his family moved to Warren County, New Jersey, which is northwest of Trenton. At age 21, Maxwell enlisted in the provincial militia and was one of many future generals who had one of his early military experiences on the Braddock Campaign near what is today Pittsburgh. As a lieutenant in the New Jersey Blues, Maxwell fought in the French and Indian War, participating in the British assault on Carillon, where British General Howe's older brother was killed. After the French and Indian War, Maxwell continued to serve in the British Army as a commissary officer on the frontier. He spent time at Fort Michilmackinac in what is today Michigan. Despite his long-standing role with the British Army, Maxwell was a committed patriot. In 1774, he resigned his commission and returned to New Jersey. The following year, he took a commission as colonel in the 2nd New Jersey Regiment. After his regiment joined the Continental Army, Colonel Maxwell led his regiment on the Quebec Campaign under General John Sullivan. As the war moved to the New York-New Jersey area in the second half of 1776, Congress appointed 10 new brigadier generals in August and September. Colonel Maxwell was not among them. Finally, in October, after the British had already taken New York and were on the verge of invading New Jersey, Congress finally promoted Maxwell to brigadier. Maxwell fought under Washington during the retreat from New York and in the Philadelphia campaign. He also played a leading role in the Sullivan campaign of upstate New York. Now, despite his active leadership roles in the war, Maxwell did not seem to stand out. He was known as Scotch Willie to the men and had a rather rough-hewn, hard-drinking persona that probably kept him from the favor of gentlemen like George Washington. In 1777, Washington had authorized Maxwell to form the New Jersey Brigade, which was supposed to be an effective light infantry force. Maxwell did credibly well at Cooch's Bridge and Brandywine, but his actions did not seem to overly impress the leadership. So despite four years of combat as a brigadier in 1780, Maxwell had failed to see another promotion. One reason was probably that New Jersey already had a major general and that two from that state might have been seen as excessive. Another reason was Maxwell's reputation for drinking. That's something that wouldn't necessarily prevent his promotion, but it certainly didn't help. Washington found Maxwell most useful in his home state of New Jersey, mostly organizing local militia for defense against British raids. As he had under General Sterling at Connecticut Farms, Maxwell would command a mix of Continentals and militia at the front of the American lines where the British were expected to attack. Back in New York City, General Clinton blamed the whole state of alert in New Jersey among the Americans on General Niphausen's ill-advised assault of June 7th. Clinton and Niphausen were barely on speaking terms after that. With reports from Arnold that the French were going to land very soon on Rhode Island, Clinton decided that an assault on West Point was out of the question. Even if the British managed to capture West Point, the combined Continental and French Army could probably take it back and might also capture a sizable chunk of the British Army in the process. 
Instead, Clinton planned an attack that he hoped would force Washington's Continentals into combat in open field in New Jersey. He ordered Generals Matthew and Niphausen to take 6,000 men across to Elizabethtown and march towards Springfield. Notably, Clinton put Major General Matthew in charge of the operation, only supported by Lieutenant General Niphausen. Clinton would then deploy a second force of 4,000 men under the command of Major General Alexander Leslie to Haverstraw Bay, up the Hudson River, about 15 miles south of West Point. This would put Washington's Continentals in between two different armies and yet keep his forces close enough to New York City that his armies could still defend against any surprise attack. The British could then capture or destroy the Continentals before they could escape into the mountains. As I said, the British still held a beachhead at Elizabethtown, which was regularly taking hit-and-run raid attacks from the Americans. These attacks were often led by Lee's cavalry, who were trying to determine enemy numbers. On the night of June 22nd, a group of Queens Rangers, led by Colonel John Graves Simcoe and Hessian Jaegers, sent out a raiding party from Elizabethtown to capture a few of the American pickets. Now, they managed to capture a few prisoners, but they also lost two men killed, several wounded, and a couple of their own captured by the Americans, who remained on full alert. That night, in the pre-dawn hours of June 23rd, the British launched their main offensive. General Matthew was already in Elizabethtown with a division that included the Queen's Rangers and a number of other Hessian Loyalist and regular units. Niphaus commanded a second division that would cross the pontoon bridge and support Matthew. A third division, under General Robertson, would remain in Elizabethtown to keep open a line of supplies and communication with New York and also a possible line of retreat. Matthew and Niphausen's divisions would march to Connecticut Farms as they had weeks earlier. There, they would divide so that Niphausen would march directly towards Springfield, while Matthew would march back to the east, away from the enemy, and make an unobserved advance towards Springfield from a different direction. Matthew's division, led by Colonel Simcoe and the Queen's Rangers, led the advance beginning around 4 a.m. They almost immediately came into contact with Maxwell's Continentals and New Jersey Militia at Connecticut Farms, or what was left of the village. The Americans had set up their defenses amidst the ruins of the houses burned there weeks earlier. In planned retreats, the Americans pulled back across the Rahway River. Behind them was the village of Springfield. General Green anticipated that the British would probably mount a direct assault as a distraction while they hit their target with a flanking maneuver. It was a plan of attack that the British had used successfully in many prior battles against the Americans. So, instead of keeping his main force at Springfield, Green positioned most of his soldiers at Short Hills a few miles to the north. A relatively small number of Continentals and militia fought a slow retreat against the advancing British, ultimately sacrificing possession of Springfield with the intent of staying between the British and Hobart Gap, a more defensible area that would be necessary for the British to capture if they wanted to march on Morristown. As Green anticipated, Niphausen pushed directly against Springfield, while Matthews' division crossed further upriver with the intent of flanking the Americans at Springfield from the side. Niphausen used a small number of field artillery to amuse the Americans at Springfield, while Matthew crossed the Vauxhall Bridge virtually unopposed. 
the Niphausen soldiers entered Springfield by late morning. Apparently, against orders, the invading force burned pretty much all the homes in the village. According to an after-action report, Niphausen had ordered one house to be burned because troops were taking fire from the enemy from that house. Other soldiers, seeing that house set on fire, took that to mean that it was open season on the entire village of 30 homes being burned to the ground. The Americans continued to pull back in good order, inflicting casualties and staying between the enemy and Hobart Gap. There's one story, unclear if it's true, of the Reverend Caldwell fighting with the defenders at this time. Now remember, Caldwell's wife had been killed a few weeks earlier at Connecticut Farms. The story goes that when the Americans began to run out of wadding for their guns, which is basically little pieces of paper, Caldwell gave them some hymnals by the late Isaac Watts and told him to use those for wadding, crying, give them Watts, boys. Some of the Americans received orders to launch a counterattack on Springfield, but these orders were quickly countermanded by General Green, who wanted them to pull back and take a better defensive position. Green did not want to fight the enemy, except on the ground of his own choosing. Springfield was not a strategic target. Keeping the British from reaching Hobart Gap was the goal of the Continental Army. Niphausen's forces eventually moved forward to the main American defenses behind a second branch of the Rahway River. Once again, the Americans withdrew in good order, still inflicting casualties as they pulled back. Unable to confront the Americans on favorable ground, the frustrated British divisions under both Matthew and Niphausen ceased their advance by early afternoon. The two divisions once again concentrated their forces in Springfield, but found the Americans in good defensive positions that could not be dislodged without great loss. The British then opted to pull back to Elizabethtown. Green sent a harassing force of about 120 soldiers to pursue the British, but kept his main army in their defenses. Lee's cavalry also exchanged fire with the British rearguard and captured a few stragglers. By evening, the main British forces were back in Elizabethtown and using the pontoon bridge to cross back into Staten Island. By dawn the following day, the entire British army was back in New York and had dismantled the pontoon bridge, completely abandoning their toehold at Elizabethtown. American losses were rather light, only 15 killed, 49 wounded, and 11 missing. British losses, as reported by Niphausen, were also relatively light, 14 killed, 89 wounded, and 11 missing. But several other unofficial reports indicate that British casualties were at least double that amount. Even so, both sides acted with caution. Neither side risked large casualties by engaging with the enemy where the enemy wanted. Green, in his first independent command in years, had proven that he knew how to give up ground tactically for a larger strategic victory, something that would serve him well over the next year or two. The British had bet that the Americans would make the same mistakes they had made in previous battles. The American generals, however, were becoming more experienced in strategy and were not likely to make those same rookie blunders again. The British were also still relying on intelligence that the Continental Army was on the verge of collapse and that New Jersey was ready to return to crown rule in order to put an end to the chaos under Patriot rule. These attacks, both Springfield and Connecticut Farms, made clear that the Continentals could still very much hold their own against a large operation, and that the New Jersey militia 
was still a force to be reckoned with should the British decide to try to attack again. If anything, these attacks made things worse for the British. Burning Springfield Village handed the Americans another public relations victory. They could portray the British and Hessians as ruthless savages who had no regard for civilians, which, of course, encouraged New Jersey civilians to continue to support the Patriots. All the fighting over resources between Army and civilians over the winter seemed to wash away in the face of a British attack against the New Jersey countryside. Next week, we're going to head south again to North Carolina, where the British in South Carolina start making inroads into North Carolina, resulting in the Battle of Ramsers Mill. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager. I'm also pleased to announce a new member of the club, Michael Gaylord. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam, Michael Mulhern, and TJ Walker. And to my new standard bearers who joined in August, Tyler Metzger, Nick Sava, Robbie Bloom, and Steve Sunison. Patreon really has become the primary way I can cover my costs of this podcast as it's grown. It's allowed me to keep this podcast largely commercial-free and to make everything available to all at no mandatory cost. I really am grateful for everyone who has become an ongoing sponsor of this podcast. I also appreciate one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. Last month, Rusty Bramlett, Kevin Way, Jean-Francois Deleuze, and Jarris and Company all made one-time donations. Thanks much. And just a tip for people giving money on PayPal. You have an option to send payment for goods or services or to friends and family. Since what you're sending me is a gift and not a purchase, it helps me if you pick the friends and family option. That way PayPal doesn't charge me a fee for the transaction. Many of you know that I also run the American Revolution Roundtable of South Jersey. I'm pleased to announce that after more than two years, we're finally returning to live events. We meet at the Lyceum in Mount Holly, New Jersey, and our first live event will be on September 13th, where Kyle Jenks, who portrays James Madison for tours, mostly in Philadelphia, will be giving a talk. If you're within reasonable driving distance of Mount Holly, New Jersey, please join me for this event. I posted a link with details on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. 
Well, this week we covered the Battle of Springfield, New Jersey. Most of us tend to think about the war in New Jersey as ending after the Battle of Monmouth in 1778, other than maybe some really minor raids. The British mostly sat in New York City and watched the real action in the South. But Springfield was a major battle involving thousands of soldiers. We don't really remember it as such because neither side engaged in a way that resulted in massive casualties, and the conflict didn't really do anything to change the strategic standoff between the two armies. But without the benefit of our hindsight, military commanders on both sides still thought that the war could be won or lost in the North. Washington was still obsessed with retaking New York City, and Clinton still clung to the hope that he could cut off New England from the rest of the rebellious colonies. The advance on Springfield was Clinton's hope to make some gains before the arrival of the French army in America. One reason he didn't succeed was that American commanders were more experienced by this time and did not put their armies at risk unnecessarily. The British might have been better off not attacking, since, as I said, many citizens of New Jersey were growing weary of the costs of the war and maintaining the Continental Army in the state. This new attack by the British reinforced for many members of New Jersey why the army was needed. If the British had just sat in New York City, the lack of funds and support for the army probably would have had a greater impact on its destruction. It's also with this episode that we're probably going to be saying goodbye to General William Maxwell. The general would resign his commission a few weeks after the Battle of Springfield. By some accounts, he was hoping that his offer to resign following this victory would get Congress to finally promote him to major general. Other accounts seem to indicate that there was some scandal of sort, but there really are no details about why he might have resigned because of some scandal. Whatever Maxwell's motive, Congress simply accepted his resignation, ending his long military career. He later tried to get reinstated, but Congress said no thanks. He served one term in the New Jersey legislature after the war, but he mostly retired to his family's farm near Phillipsburg, where he died in obscurity. My book recommendation this week is called The Forgotten Victory, The Battle for New Jersey, 1780, by Thomas Fleming. This book focuses on the ongoing fight over New Jersey between Generals Clinton and Washington. Fleming, of course, was a prolific history author who wrote many books on the Revolution. He was also a New Jersey native, and he wrote The Forgotten Victory in 1973. Hopefully most of you know this by now, but Fleming sadly passed away at the age of 90 about five years ago. This book, The Forgotten Victory, is pretty hard to find and is out of print. I've been trying to find an affordable copy for a while with no luck, so if you're trying to think of a good birthday present for me... Here's an idea for you. You can get a used copy on Amazon if you're willing to pay big bucks, but otherwise, if you're like me, you can make do with the free online version available on archive.org. My online recommendation is a good article about William Maxwell. Thomas Sobel wrote an article for the Journal of the American Revolution called William Maxwell, New Jersey's Hard-Fighting General. And as always, I've included links to it on my website and blog. My question this week asks, what would a British victory in the American Revolutionary War have looked like? Well, I'd say the best chance of a British victory came in late 1776, when the Continentals were trying to defend New York City. 
If the British had landed troops in northern Manhattan Island, they probably could have cut off any continental retreat and forced a surrender of the entire army. This likely would have been such a blow to American morale that Congress would have been unable to raise another army and probably would have sued for peace. Since General Howe and Admiral Howe were both appointed peace commissioners and probably pretty sympathetic to the colonists' cause, they likely would have given out pardons to just about everyone and allowed things to return to normal. Now, in this post-rebellion colonial period, and we're really getting into some alternate history here, but it really could have gone several ways. The British might have recognized that the colonists had legitimate concerns over taxation without representation and adapted the colonial system to meet those concerns. Another option would have been to crack down on the colonies and take away even more rights of self-rule. There were factions in London for either of these positions. If Britain went with the former policy of accommodation, the colonies in America would have continued to grow and prosper. However, it probably would have resulted in the colonies demanding more and more autonomy over time, eventually seeking virtual independence within the British Empire, much like Canada or Australia have today. There probably would not be a single United States. Rather, there would be smaller regional countries, such as New England, or perhaps even individual states like Virginia operating as their own countries. The need to unite would not have been as strong since the colonies would rely on Britain for security and sectional rivalries would have kept the regions divided. If Britain had gone with the latter policy of cracking down, the colonies probably would have continued to resist and fight back, eventually leading to independence at some later time, much like what happened in Ireland. In that case, the U.S. probably would have grown much more slowly, resulting in more French, Spanish, and Russian influence in different regions of North America. Now, the bottom line is that I think some form of independence was inevitable. The colonies were growing too populous and too economically powerful to be contained forever. Further, Britain never would have given full representation to the point where Britain would have become a minority within its own empire. So independence was more a question of when or how rather than if it would happen. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me on either email or social media. I'd be happy to answer your questions. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.